Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, please welcome uh, Shinubu Hinder, author of Investing in Your Superpower, which I like the title of the book, and it can't be more timely considering how the market's just insane right now. So I'm just glad to have you here. Happy to be here. Thank you. This is I'm excited to be talking about this because I live and breathe it. Well, I'm glad. And so what I'd like you to do is start off by talking about your own personal background and history uh, in your professional uh, world. Sure. So background, um, you know, when I was in college, I studied economics and got a minor in business and had no idea what I was going to do with that in the real world. And as it got closer to graduating, I was looking at internships and I started interning at Smith Barney and was working day in and day out with the stock market. They were still punching tickets at that time. Very different. So it was kind of fun because you had to run from your desk to run to timestamp something. Um, So I felt that it was really engaging and exciting, but I also looked at it like a black hole. I had no idea really what moved the markets. I didn't know how the uh, investment professionals were making decisions for their clients. And then you added the layers of financial plans. And I was going, okay, I'm about to get this degree. And I have no idea what this whole other side of the universe is. So it kind of opened my eyes in an exciting way to learning about financial planning in the stock market. But a lot of it was also driven from fear because I was going, okay, well, if I don't know any of this information and I need to know it later, how am I going to know the answers to it? So that was also a driver for me was really finding out the knowledge behind how to make financial decisions. So what made, what made you write this book? I was getting a lot of the same questions from people and I was answering them again and again, and I was going, you know what, they were, the, the follow-up questions people would ask me is, where can I go to get more information of what you just talked to me about? So I would go online and I'd look for different sites that had educational information on investing or personal finance, but there was a lot of pop-up ads or you know, it was kind of selling something else later on. So it was difficult for me to direct people to one place. And that's really what sparked the idea of, let me write this book in an orderly fashion, give people a step-by-step process to create their own financial plans, have it in here. So if they can't find me to work one-on-one or they can't work with a planner or maybe aren't ready to, this is a great place for them to start. So I think a lot of people really don't know what a certified financial planner is. So what's a certified financial planner? And there's a couple of different types of planners. And what does it mean that you're certified? So you go through, uh, you know, a, a board that essentially looks at ethics, of course, and you have to have a certain amount of financial planning experience. And then you have to take a series of tests, coursework that you have to go through. I think now they even do a live element where you have to present either a topic or maybe some kind of panel. It wasn't that way when I was doing it. But it essentially what it does is it takes you away from the profession where you're selling a product or selling a financial solution, but looking at a person's situation holistically. So it takes a look at risk management, a lot of insurance planning, um, tax planning, retirement planning, income planning. What I loved about becoming a certified financial planner was also learning about estate planning. I think sometimes people will say, okay, we'll just get that to an attorney. Um, however, as really as a financial planner, you need to understand the laws around how everything is working, what can be changed, what can't be changed. So when you're suggesting or recommending a solution, it fits into the big picture. So becoming a certified financial planner is just taking it an extra step to make sure that you have and are able to take a holistic view at someone's financial situation. But there's two types of plans, right? One that you pay just to do the plan and you manage it yourself. 
and another where they do the plan, but they're also managing it and they get fees from the products they might recommend or just the overall assets uh, under management. Am I correct? So yes and no, because financial planners or advisors or kind of wealth companies that will do the fee-based kind of asset management. So you have a million dollars under management, they charge you a 1% fee. Most of the times, well, I should say, you should work with somebody who does that, who also is a certified financial planner, who can create this plan for you. And then those investment solutions are, are really what you're paying for, but the other services are included. If they're not included, then I don't know that, you know, then you would have to go out and find another planner to create your plan. Um, the fee-based planners where you're paying just for a financial plan is a great option. If you don't know where to start and maybe you're weary of somebody who does charge a fee on the assets because you might be saying to yourself, well, is this really what's good for me or are they just selling me what's available? So if you find yourself in this situation where you just don't have a lot of trust, then it would be good to go to a planner who's going to charge you just for the plan. So when you are working with someone who's going to start managing your assets, maybe you will be more comfortable asking tougher questions or asking more specific questions about um, their investment strategy. Um, also, if you don't qualify, so some of the you know really sought out investment managers, they might have a minimum of $2 million of, of liquid assets. So let's say you have a million in your 401k and then you have you know some real estate holdings, they're going to say, well, you don't qualify, so we can't even work with you. Um, so you might want to seek out a fee-based planner who they're going to charge you a flat fee. It's typically anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000. Then you pay them, you get that plan, and then again, you might have to go do the investments on your own, but you at least have an objective view of how you should be running your finances. Uh, in the beginning of the book, you write that women were rarely involved with managing people's money or, or their own, and that 61% of women prefer to talk about death the money, uh, according to a 2018 Merrill Lynch study, but a 2015 study by Fidelity, which is now run by uh, the founder's daughter, Abigail Johnson, showed 92% of women want to learn about financial planning. My 84-year-old mom, who's going to be 85 this summer uh, and going on 29, is very good uh, with managing her own money. I'm there as a backstop, but she really knows what she's doing. So where do things stand now in 2023? I think within the industry of how many women are working in the industry, it's it's increasing. So part of what I had mentioned in the book in the beginning was when I started, I worked for one of the largest regional, um, I guess, branches for Smith Barney. I think we had about 90 brokers there and there was two women two women actually as financial planners themselves or brokers. So when I started out, it was it was kind of rare to see women doing that. Now there's been a really big push to kind of include women and then also make more flexible schedules so women can um, do more job sharing, that kind of thing. So I think the industry is changing. Um, Abby Johnson being a leader of one of the biggest and most successful financial firms is kind of an awesome trend um, that's going to continue. I think the thirst for knowledge that women have. So although women aren't necessarily doing all the management, they want to know. People want more information now. They don't want to make decisions blindly. They want to be included in those conversations. So what I'm seeing is, and really my my a lot of my business is based on women coming, going, I, I want more information. How can I learn about this? So I think the thirst for knowledge has just exploded. I have to say, my daughter runs a global communications company and, and her husband uh, works with her and she, he manages the money. And I'm always a little surprised because I always encouraged her to learn as much about money management as possible. I, I was fortunate that my dad showed me how to buy stocks when I was 12 and gave me money uh, to make investments. And I, I loved it and continue enjoying it, but never did uh, did. He never did that with my sister. So they were never uh, tuned into it. My one sister is uh, as an accountant by trade. And so she's knowledgeable about that. But what age do you think people should start to learn about personal finance? I, I honestly think as soon as you can understand concepts about money, it's important to start learning about it because everything is, 
you know, you want to build a foundation and have building blocks on top of that. So concepts that maybe are a little bit more complicated or sophisticated in the future, you're not having to learn from the bottom up. You're, you're kind of just adding it to your existing knowledge. So I would say as soon as children can learn about the concepts surrounding money is a great time to start. So how do you earn money? What do you do with the money once you earn it? You know, you can spend it, you can save it, you can give it, you can grow it. And then as they get older, opening an account. You know, I have so many people that'll tell me their first memory of money is going to a bank and yes, you know, physically. So it's it's different now because everything's run by technology. But I think the more you can engage and have these conversations, um, even at a very basic level of how much something costs. So let's say you're, you know, part of the school, you have to buy your kids a tablet. And you go and you buy this tablet to explain to them how much that costs and maybe potentially even how many hours it takes you to make that money so they can understand, okay, everything costs money and you you work, you earn this income, you do that. And then what do we do with it later on? So even if it's a piggy bank, um, as children get older, I would absolutely introduce them to the stock market. They don't need to know and understand everything, but I think like you had mentioned, even if it's just a little investment, but they can see, maybe they look at a statement a couple times a year, but just to get them familiar. So it's not scary or um, <laughs> I hate to say this, but boring to them when they look at it, like, oh, I want to look at that later, just kind of get them used to it. It's part of their their regiment that they do. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, they're less likely to get ripped off as adults, the more financial knowledge they have. So I think that if, if you could start in middle school, I think that would be great. And I know some private schools actually start teaching it in like ninth grade and do simulations where the kids buy stocks and so forth. So the younger, the better. Yes. You write about an empowerment plan. What's, what is that and how does that work? And at what age should you start planning? So the Empower Plan is really just a result of following my three-phase approach to reaching financial goals. So phase one is really fully understanding the why behind your wish list. So whatever your goals are, why do you want to have them? Um, having transparency on all of your numbers. So your spending, your income sources, your debt, your assets, all of that. Phase two is really understanding the investment world and account types. So why would you use you know one account versus another type of account? what investments are out there, what would be attractive to you, really just kind of getting to know yourself as an investor. And then phase three is actually putting everything together. What can you automate so you don't have to exhaust your mind to be doing this at the end of a long work week? Um, and then putting the systems in place so you're able to make changes, not reactions to the market, but changes as your situation, you need to make adjustments to the market. So it's really, how do I do all of this broken down into three different phases, just kind of bite-sized pieces so you can check things off the list as you go. Um, when you should start planning, I would suggest 18 because at, at 18, you're kind of given all of these rights, right? You can even go out on your own, get your own apartment. Uh, maybe you're in college. Maybe you don't go to college. But you're going to be confronted with some real life decisions that you have to make. You're probably going to be getting a lot of credit cards mailed to you, you know, that you can activate. So it's really a time where the world looks at you like an adult and you're getting access to a lot of credit as well that you want to sit down and look at from a very basic level in the area that I live or the area I want to live in, what does it cost to rent? Okay. Well, based on that rent after taxes, what is the income that I need to be earning? Is this possible? Can I cover this? And really start looking at making adult decisions and having income to support that. Because I think people can get into debt really quickly, really early, because they're leading more with what they want to be doing and where they want to be doing it. And then Eight years later, five years later, they're going, oh, no, I've created this mountain of debt and I didn't realize what I was doing at that age. So I would say the sooner, the better to start. Uh, you write about SMART goals and that's an acronym. So please explain the acronym and what are the critical issues and subjects you should look at when setting goals and planning the life you want to live, such as travel, entertainment and eating. And, and I, I agree with you about I actually started investing crazy. Uh, from my retirement, like at 22, 23 years old, because the earlier you do it, the less you have to backload later, yeah. you know, uh, and and because if you're busy trying to catch up, then you've got kids going to college and 
it becomes infinitely more difficult. So talk about SMART goals, how that works. Yeah, SMART goals is, is a strategy or method that many, many people use. Uh, many universities will use it, but it's an acronym that stands for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, and Timely. So essentially, anytime you have a goal, you know, I, I, what I hear a lot from people is, oh, I want to save more money this year. It's, it's our goal. We've sat down. We want to save more money. But when you look at that, um, you want to be really specific. So in your situation, what is more money? Is that you want to save $10,000 this year or is that $100,000? What is more money to you? So get very specific on that dollar amount. Um, having it be measurable. You look at it like a work project, right? If, the, if someone gives you a project to work on, they're going to be checking up. You're going to have milestones that you want to reach. You want to do this for yourself as well. So what are the realistic milestones? It might be, you know, I'm going to save an extra 10% from my paycheck every month. I can't do it right now. So I'm going to start at 3%. So I'm going to put a reminder for myself next quarter. Can I increase that 3% to 5%? So how can you measure the milestones along the way? Achievable. This is really important. So you want to set yourself up for success. Can you even achieve this goal? So if, if it is, you know, to let's say you want to max out your 401k this year, and that's the 22500 without the catch-up contribution, well, can you do that? That's about $1,875 a month. How, how close are you able to do that? If you're not able, then maybe it's saying, okay, instead of maxing it out, I want to be able to do 10000 So you want to set yourself up to be able to hit the goal. Um, Relevant is really important because when you step away from planning these goals, you might lose steam, right? Other distractions are going to come up in life. Um, you know, you're going to get busy. It's going to get really nice outside. It's going to be summer. There's lots of other things going on. So how relevant? What impact is this goal going to have on your life? And you want to feel some emotion tied to it. Otherwise, you're less likely to be sticking to this goal. Um, timely is huge. If we set goals that are like in 10 years from now, I want to be doing X, Y, Z. It's great to have that, but that's not a smart goal. Smart goals are making something that you can reach within the next 12 months. So that way you can kind of, again, build on these milestones that you're measuring along the way. And then after the 12 months, you're really gaining a lot of momentum to say, I did this. I'm amazing. And then you can do it again the following year. I guess the short term is what keeps you incentivized. If you were looking at 10 years, you're like, oh, all right, it didn't happen this year. I'll do it next year. And you just keep kicking the can down the road, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's probably why the short term goals exist. Why do you say ambiguity and vagueness are the biggest goal killers? Um, I think when we set goals for ourselves, we're in this mindset of hope and excitement. And so we're, we're looking at these um really from a place of passion. And when you are vague behind that, you lose the drivers of what the finish line could look like, kind of what you just said of kicking the can down the road. If the finish line keeps changing because you were never clear on what the goal is in the first place, number one, you're putting yourself in a situation where you don't have to feel bad necessarily because you didn't really not hit your goal because it wasn't really clear to begin with. But then you're also losing that, um, kind of pride, passion, momentum you can get when you are hitting a goal. So if you have a vague goal, like I want to save more money or I want to build wealth, let's dig down into what that looks like. What can you do over the next six months to move a little bit closer to the finish line? What does the next 12 months look like? How much reading and what should you read to be able to manage your finances and ask your planner intelligent and informed questions? I mean, I used to read money, Wall Street Journal, Barron. I mean, I still read the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Fortune, Forbes, Equities. I mean, I've read like 12 publications uh, to keep myself up to speed on this. So what do you recommend? What should they read online or or offline so they know what to, so they even understand what you're telling them and they can make good decisions? I think it depends on someone's level of interest. So to me, based on what you were saying, it sounds like it's also a hobby of yours that you're interested in it. And there's lots of people that are. And I think, you know, Bloomberg is a great place to start, um, Wall Street Journal, Barron's. But there are people that for their own industries as well. They have to do a lot of reading. They have to be, you know, paying attention to different industries all the time that this feels like homework to them where they're like, okay, what do I have to go read? What am I looking at here? So I think it's 
to read as much as you're comfortable with. And it's okay to tell yourself, I don't need to be an expert. I don't need to be overly involved. But if that's the route you want to go, you also have to be equally committed to finding a partner who's a professional in the field that you can build a relationship, trust, ask questions with, um, and ask uncomfortable questions. I think people, as we become more successful in our own careers, people become more shy about asking financial questions because they're going, well, wait a minute, people come to me as an expert in what I do. It's embarrassing. I don't know these. So I'm not going to ask anybody. I'm going to kind of keep it to myself. So you need to find someone that you can trust and go, I got a question. And if they you know, give you a solution, you have no idea what it means. You can just tell them, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you explain it a little bit differently? So I think if you are interested, I love the Bloomberg updates. I think they're great. Um, so it's kind of finding what publications you're you're comfortable with, but poke around. And then if you're not, and you don't want to do it, then tell that to yourself, but then go find a professional partner. But uh, don't you think that they need that discipline anyway? I mean, so because you're going to make suggestions and they're not always going to work out. I mean, I see that with planners that I work with. And and and, and if every planner got it right, then everybody would be super rich. Uh, and, and the market's always constantly changing. But, you know, an informed client is probably your best client uh, mm-hmm. because they're going to understand what you're doing and why you recommended that. So is there a like a minimal amount and do you send things to your own clients to keep them up to speed on what's going on? Um, I would suggest if someone's pretty new to it uh, within my book in phase two, it's really just what investments are out there. And then it breaks down what are potential investment strategies. So people can kind of wrap their mind around, okay, what direction do I want to go in based on that? Um, To keep up to date, I would, if they are especially working with a planner, um, there should at least be quarterly updates of what's going on in the market, why your portfolio is getting impacted, kind of what does the future look like? That doesn't mean there's always going to be um, many changes being made to people's portfolios, but for them to have an understanding of, because also, as we know, what's happening in the economy is not a direct reflection of what's happening in the stock market. You know, there could be times where things don't feel good. You know, if in nine months from now, a report comes out that we've been in a recession, well, the market already knows that. It's already priced in. So we're, as we read news, it's usually um, already priced into the market. So it is good to keep up to date um, with that as well. So the news lags uh, the market. Yes, always. And especially because of technology. So when I started in the industry, maybe 17 years ago, you know, you had to place trades in a formal way where I had a client in my previous life job call me and go, I was half asleep. I woke up. I placed a trade. I accidentally pushed 10,000 instead of 1,000 shares. He made a huge trade and wanted to undo it. And it was because he was like, I I, I just rolled over on my phone. Like He just was kind of half asleep when he did it. Yeah. And I'm on West Coast time. And but now the markets don't even, you know, depending on if you're trading futures or if you're doing other investments, trading overseas, you can do it overnight on your phone. So yes, the market is priced in all of this information that we're reading about um, already. It's already seen it, done it, made made its changes. So what's, what's your take on the upheaval with the stock market over the past year and how should people be looking at their portfolios? Because a lot of people go into panic and, and just sell, sell, sell because they're afraid how much more lower it's going to go. And I know from dealing with planners and I've worked with money management firms, helping them with marketing strategy. The last thing they want is people running for the doors like there's a fire. So what's your take on all of this? Yeah, I mean, the stock market is volatile. I think you mentioned it. If everybody knew what the market was going to do, then we'd all be billionaires and probably there would be no stock market. Um, So investors need to be willing to take on risk to capture a reward in the market. So we have enough historical data points that we can reference. And if you just take a look at the S&P 500, it's been positive 32 out of the last 43 years. So that's 75% of the time the S&P is positive. That's why people invest in the stock market, because it's not the Wild West. We're going to have moments of volatility and 
and a lot of movements. But as far as you know, someone's portfolio goes, what you want to look at in times of volatility like this is do your underlying investments actually match the time frame of when you're going to use the money? And are you diversified? So you don't want to just make changes to make changes because generally you could pull out of the market before it kind of on the way down, right? And save yourself from some losses. But what people miss nine out of 10 times is the right time to buy back in. So then they're waiting and then the market's coming back up and then you're buying back in and and you would have been better off if you just stayed invested. So that's why a lot of financial planners or investment managers are telling people not to jump in and out because they don't know the right time to go back in. Not because we can't shelter from some losses. It's just we don't know the one huge day the market's going to have. And if you miss that day, maybe you're invested for the rest of the year and you don't capture that reward. So if you don't have a diversified strategy and you're just kind of have everything in a one account and you got everything in there and there's no real strategy, it's a good time for you to take a look at look at what you're doing. If you do have a strategy and it lines up and nothing significant in your financial situation has changed, then you want to keep it as is. If you've decided as an investor, you're no longer comfortable with market volatility, that's a, that's a different discussion and you need to sit down, um, probably maybe make some changes, but don't do anything knee-jerk reaction. It should be well thought out. When should people buy individual stocks over putting their money in mutual funds? Essentially, how much homework should you do before you spin the wheel? Um, I would reserve kind of, I call it fun money. (laughs) So if you want to invest in individual stocks um, that you, maybe companies that you like, I would do it with, you know, 10% of your money or less, because that way, if you're wrong, you're not you're not forfeiting your retirement or you're not risking, especially if you're managing money for your entire family. You know, if you're, if you got your kids, things in there, you have retirement, you don't want to be just placing bets in individual stocks because when you're investing in one specific stock, you have company risk, you have sector or market specific risk, and then you have the volatility of the market overall. So it's kind of extra risky when you're buying an individual stock um, because you need to build a whole portfolio around it. So it depends on how savvy somebody is. There are stocks that I like that I just like them. And I'm like, you know what? I think there's a lot of growth potential. I actually really like this product. I want to put some money in it, but I'm not doing that with a big chunk of my retirement or you know, money that I need for my kids' education. I'm doing it with money that I'm like, if I double this money, I'm going to be super happy and ask myself why I didn't put in more. But if I lose this money, I'm going to go, all right, it's all right. I took a chance and I, I'm okay. I can still, I still have a roof over my head. Yeah. I think that's the smart move for sure. Not for my own kids. I set their money up separately. So if something happened to my money or I was sued or whatever, they were protected. Their college education wasn't going uh, anywhere. Uh, Years ago, the number of equities you own compared to bonds and others, uh, maybe less risky events, used to be sorted by age. You were told, uh, you know, based on your age, if you were uh, 25 years old, you would have 75% of your money in the market. And if you became 60 years old, you'd have 40% of the money in the market and 60% in bonds. Is that still hold true today or is it looked at differently now? It's definitely true today because it's really when you're going to access that money. If someone's in retirement, I think those have shifted because that was kind of a blanket statement before. If you're retired, it should be 60-40, but it depends. So my husband's grandmother, she lived till 101. Oh, you're stuck with him for a long time. I know. Well, we'll see. We'll see see when I go, but potentially (laughs) there's potential. Um, So, and then his other grandmother died uh, well into her nineties. So it depends, you know, previously if someone retired at 60, it'd be okay, 60, 40. But now if if there's another 40 years that people could be living after retirement, a 60, 40 is not a good strategy. So it really depends on what are your sources of income? What money are you touching? If you're young and the money is dedicated towards retirement, I would go more equity heavy. Take take chances in the market. Hopefully you're adding to that account. So if the market's dipping, you're purchasing at some of those lows, but it, it should match up when you're actually going to touch that money. So there is, I think retirement's a whole other psychological um 
element that people have to realize just because I'm retired, it doesn't mean I should go so safe with my money. As we're seeing right now with inflation, you go really safe with your money. That could have a big impact on your purchasing power in the future. So you really want to plan with a, like I said, a professional partner to go through potential scenarios that you could see really in your lifetime. What What's the mix of things you look at when putting together a financial plan? I'm guessing age, marital status, profession, so when you're putting together the recipe for anyone, what are you looking at? Uh, definitely their goals. And especially if you're planning with a partner, having them write them out separately and then rank them by priority separately, because, you know, it's it's really interesting working with thousands of people over the years, you know, you could have a couple where one of them has a, an illness that's going to affect their life expectancy. And then you have another one that might have longevity in their family. So their priorities are actually very different and it's difficult for them to talk about them together. So it's, it's important to understand as each individual, where do they stand as a couple, where do they stand? So really understanding, well-defining what those goals are, um, understanding their full picture of what kind of debt are they carrying? What is their tolerance to risk? How have they responded to previous markets in the past? What do their assets look like? Just really going through all of these very, very personal questions. Right. Sure. Absolutely. Is there a minimum amount you should be saving yearly just to take care of yourself so you aren't a burden to your children? And, and with this fear that Social Security might fail, do you factor Social Security into the retirement plan? Um, so I'm, I'm no longer a financial planner. So I do more kind of coaching around uh, building wealth and really just education around it. Um, but when I was a financial planner, and I know many still do consider and factor in Social Security. So it's not totally taken out. The the amounts are maybe not as high. Um, but 20% is kind of the rule of thumb of what you should be saving. Um, there, there's different milestones or benchmarks, people should say at different ages of what money you should have for the kind of income you want to replace. But I think it really boils down to on, you know, how much debt you have on your spending. Because I've worked with people that make millions of dollars a year, but they spend millions of dollars a year. So yeah. there's not enough money that they could be saving to support the lifestyle that they want. And I've met other people that aren't making a ton of money, but they save and they don't they don't have a lot of expenses. So it really depends on once you cut off the income source, whether that's W-2 income or a business that you have, once you cut that off, to really be honest with yourself of where is that income coming from? Um, are you going to be, you know, sometimes I live in Southern California, you'll have people say, oh, I'll just sell my house. But when the time comes, they're like, actually, my kids live here. I have grandkids here. I don't really want to move. So you really want to look at how are you going to be replacing that income? And then you can back into what does that mean for how much I should be saving today? Yeah. I, and you're right. You're at different places and how you manage your own money now. And you're right. I've come across lots of people who spend everything that they make yeah. or, or they get um, house uh, heavy and all it takes is one adverse situation, and now they're in real economic trouble. And isn't it the average uh, person in the U.S. only has like what fifty thousand dollars in savings or something for? Yeah, and that, that's even high from some of the numbers that I've seen. Yeah, and it's so scary because you even think to yourself, even if you have a million or two million, it's not that much money today. Right. Of how long it's going to last you. And with, again, with the inflation and, you know, and then when you get into retirement, it's not so easy to borrow money because they're looking at, you know, income and then they're going to look at, they're going to scrutinize assets. So it, it is tough. Uh, robo investors uh, and robo advisors were hot when the market was going up. Uh, but I wonder if they've taken a hit as humans want to speak to other humans for advice and reassurance. Can you explain the concept of the robo-advisor and, and what's your take on it? So robo-advisor is, is an investment solution where you pay a very minimal fee to have kind of a diversified portfolio. It's typically tied to indexes. So let's say in your example of 60-40 mix, they would do a 60-40 portfolio using a number of different indexes within that. So a lot of companies have actually adopted this and still offer that human advice. 
So that's the solution. It's included in that. Um, but there's these newer kind of fintech companies out there that have offered the robo-advisor that have very little customer service. So it really, it just depends. It's it's essentially a indexed invested investing strategy. So it's still diversified. I think that if you are building assets, let's say you don't have that much yet, and we're kind of going back to, I don't qualify to work with a you know financial planner that will look at my whole situation. It's a great place to start rather than someone just picking stocks at their their own whim. So I still like the robo-advisory service. I think the more people build wealth, the more they do want that human touch though. That That's important. Yeah. You want to be able to go through tax situations and kind of everything we've been talking about. And I think also when things go bad, you want somebody just to talk to yeah. and, and even tell you, don't jump off the roof. Uh, totally. Or don't, you know, don't sell your whole portfolio because you know right now is only a temporary situation. Just like when the market's super high, that's a temporary situation as well. You're just and just having to- context behind it, right? If you're asking someone and they're going, "Oh, don't worry about it, don't sell," you're like, "Okay," but I still don't feel comfortable. Why shouldn't I sell? To be able to have that tie it back to your own situation, understand what is going on in the market. Why is it doing what it's doing? What do, What do you think about that in the future? Just being able to really talk to someone. I mean, the robo investor, right, is very similar to what the financial planner has access to, where they feed the information in. And now it lays out kind of a plan for them. But a lot of people were have been using it for even individual stocks um, and making bets on that, which you don't know if the algorithm is correct or not correct, right? Yeah, we're going to have to go through different market cycles to see what is the performance of these and how how have they done over the long period of time, because there's just not as much data on those. Uh, should you worry about leaving your children and grandchildren money or just spend it on yourself? You know what? If we could know the exact date we were going to die, this would be a very easy question to answer. So it's it's tough because I've seen where people will sacrifice their own financial situation to help out family members. And then, you know, and then what? Because I'm like, are they going to come back and now help you when you run out of money? What is that going to look like? If you, you know, have enough and you know you're going to have a nest egg to leave over. Um, I think there's also finding this balance of not necessarily just leaving a lump sum to your loved ones in the end, but to enjoy your time with them. I, I, I saw a lot of people, clients that I used to work with in their 60s, inherit a lot of money in their 60s. And they were going, you know what? I It's it's great and wonderful that my parents left me this money, but I don't really need it now. And I could have really used this when I was in my thirties, we were struggling with our kids, um, you know, being able to pay our our mortgage. My husband had to get two jobs. Like we could have used the money then. And now I don't get to enjoy it. And my parents aren't around, you know? So I think it's, it's kind of depending on how open families are about having these discussions. I think it's also a great way to talk about it with some, with your family to be able to do that. I think um, with growing costs of education and all of that, I'm sure any parent inheriting money for their children would be ecstatic. (laughs) So, um, you know, I I think you also want to live for yourself. It's such a, it's such a fine, fine balance. And we told my mom, just enjoy your life. None of the three of us fortunately know it, but don't outspend it. Because then it's a one-way ticket on the yep. cruise ship that you ain't coming back from. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that goes around the world or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So because that way we don't have to lay out the money. Now we just tell her, don't worry about our kids and us just to go and enjoy it uh, for yourself. Yeah. Um, do men and women plan differently because women live longer than men? And does that mean women should have a higher or lower risk tolerance? Because on one hand, they need more money. And on the uh, another, they can't afford to lose any money. Yeah, I think that it depends on, you know, how really longevity, how healthy people are. Um, it depends on how tolerant of risk you are. It, more and more studies show that women are less um, motivated to take risk, where men are kind of bigger risk takers in the stock market. So 
Um, it really, it really depends. I would say if you have the chance to live longer, you should invest more aggressively so you can keep up with rising costs in the future, especially when we look at healthcare costs, if it's private healthcare, you know, if, if you need someone coming to your home, I mean, that, that's pretty expensive. So to be able to keep up with those costs of what that's going to look like in the future, I, I would argue that you'd want to invest more heavily in the stock market, but also have a better understanding of the stock market. So you're not right now in a situation with the market zone over the last 12 months, freaking out about it, that you're like, there is a reason and you can tier it too. So lots of people will have, you know, an account where they separate money out that they'll need in 25 years and they have money that they'll need, you know, within 15 years, 10 years, and then something else. So retirement planning looks very different than when you're building wealth. I have to say, you know, even with my own kids, one daughter, she's got this great business. The other daughter's working in the movie industry, not such a great business to be in. And I think about all the time, you know, being careful about how I spend my money, not just for myself, but making sure that I leave her money uh, down the road because she's not the big earner, at least at this moment in time uh, in life. I mean, I'm not denying myself everything, but I'm very careful about what I'm doing with my money. Uh, you write that life is not linear, which we have found out over the last three years. People before the pandemic with lower interest rates and a market that was growing uh, planned on one type of lifestyle and with higher interest rates might or had had to reevaluate their ambitions. I know that if you lost, uh, I know I've lost about 25% of my assets during this downturn in the market. What do you tell clients to plan for this inevitable event? Because it happens every 10 years. Sure. Um, uh, and you always have this cycle. So what do you tell them? To control what you can control. You know, you don't want to be burying your head in the sand when it comes to your finances. You want to be aware of what's going on. Again, understanding your investment strategy. Um, if, if you're not <clears throat> earning income, you should have enough cash reserves on hand to support yourself at least for a couple of years. So when the market is turbulent like this, you're not selling at a low. So you just want to have strategy, 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 and then understand this is what you have to put up with in order to participate in the market and control what you can control. So you want to look at your day-to-day -day living expenses, you know, if you're still making contributions to your accounts, um, again, understanding what the market's doing, but you have to go with the ebb and flow of what the market's doing. And the more you experience these downturns, the more you can understand yourself as an investor, which is really important as you head into retirement. So when you retire, you're not experiencing market turbulence for the first time. You're going, you know what? This is my fifth time around this type of experience. What did I do last time this happened? And learn from these, these mistakes or, or wins that you've experienced in that time. So even if you just send yourself an email, you know, during these turbulent times of what did you do? What was the strategy? What did you do? How do you feel about it? And reflect on it. And you, you have to build on these in the future because this is going to continue to happen. What percentage of your assets should be an emergency fund? And should that include backstopping your children or even your own parents? Yeah. So a percentage um, is tougher, but I think it's more of what are the day-to-day -day expenses um, especially now because it is going to become harder to access capital. You might want to err on the side of having more money in emergency funds um, than previously. So you would <clears throat> at least want to have six months for yourself. I think the, the more if you're a higher income earner and we look at, okay, well, what if you were to lose your job? It, it's harder for higher income earners to find a high paying job quickly at times to replace. So they might want to have cash reserves or emergency funds that's 18 months to just say, okay, if this were to happen, I'm giving myself leeway to find the job that I want. I don't have to jump into a job that I don't want to do because I'm, I'm you know, running out of money. Um, as, as far as parents go, you have to have these conversations and know where they're at to see because if there isn't a backup and you are the backup, well, you need to know that. And you need to understand what are their living expenses? What are things that you know I could do to supplement their income if necessary? And just have these conversations. And then even with children, I think that that's, if ultimately you're going to get the knock on the door of if they need uh, emergency backup, then yes, you should plan. And you know, you're going to give it to them, then you should plan for that. Oh well, yeah. For my one, I am the emergency backup on a monthly basis. 
So yes. Yeah, so uh, now it's part of your plan. Yeah, yeah, it is it is part of my part of my plan. And I know this is working super hard, but she's in a horrible industry and yeah. we're trying to steer her to do something else. So she's not in that position. Uh, someone asked me the other day uh, who saw the actor Tom Selleck taunt, um, promote uh, reverse mortgages. Can you explain what that is and how it works? And when does it make sense if it makes sense at all? So a reverse mortgage is typically offered when you have a lot of equity in your home. Um, so and then essentially the bank or issuer would purchase your home from you and then they pay you. So you're kind of, it's exactly what the words say. It's a reverse mortgage. They start paying you monthly income payments. Um, but when you pass away, they own the home. So you kind of lose the rights to give that on as an inheritance to family members. So um, it, it can it can work if you're not concerned about leaving your house to your loved ones then it could be a great option if you don't want to move and you need need those assets to live on a monthly basis. And kind of earlier, I gave an example of somebody who said they were using their home as their retirement plan. And then right. they didn't end up wanting to move. And they're looking at Southern California going, well, I can't even move anywhere else that's less expensive. It's all expensive or the same price in this area. So someone like that might want to consider a reverse mortgage so they're not displaced from their home. They can continue their existing lifestyle, but they also have to know that they're giving that up and share that with their family members so people don't feel like they're getting taken advantage of. I think, you know, reverse mortgages can kind of have like a, is this really right? Because you want to make sure that the person who's agreeing to the reverse mortgage understands all the terms and that's exactly what they want. I, what happens, you know, if you do reverse mortgage and you're 65 and you live another 30 years, is it, what do they do when you've kind of spent through, you know, they've paid you out the value of the house and you're still alive? What happens? You know, I don't actually know the full terms of, um, I've never sold them or been been part of them. So I'm not sure what happens after 30 Because that's what I would years. worry about is that that would be the case. And of course, you're like you said, it's like a um, what is it? not a variable uh, annuity, but ones where a fixed in, or yeah, an income guaranteed income annuity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where hey, you could put that money and you die the next day, and then your your folks don't inherit any of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I was thinking of with the reverse mortgage. It's the same thing as a you know guaranteed income annuity you're giving up a lump sum, but you're also getting that peace of mind of I'm getting the income all the time. And it's like, it just depends. One person's going to be very different from the next of what they feel comfortable doing. You might look at that and go, who in the heck would do a reverse mortgage? And other people might go, I'm not taking my chances in the stock market. And I'd rather have some money invested, but I want that paycheck every single month. So it depends on a lot of different factors. What's your take on cryptocurrency? I mean, we've seen wide fluctuations. There's, uh, and when I researched it last year, there were over 15,000 different cryptocurrencies. Oh, yeah. um, I so wonder how many of those are left this year. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. Uh, and I even had a venture capitalist speak at my class last night. And he said, I still don't get it because he's a super smart guy with an MBA from Wharton. He said, I just don't get it um, because uh, the fluctuations, it's very rarely are they tied to it. You know, there's no utility to them. They're not tied to anything. So what when your clients ask you about cryptocurrency, what did you tell them? Um, I usually just tell them, put if you want to invest in it, go ahead, but make it a dollar amount that you're also okay losing. You know, I think to tell people not to participate at all when more governments around the world are looking at it as a serious investment strategy, we we really got to open our our uh, hearts and minds to this. Does it make any sense? No. Has it been kind of a um, hedge against you know some of the global issues going on, even with? interest rates or treasuries or bank failures. Yeah, it's showing showing a little bit of that, um, but it is very unpredictable. There are many, many, many cryptocurrencies that pop up every single day. There's no good accounting 
around them. You know, there's all these different um, elements that come with it. However, I can't tell you what Bitcoin's going to do this year. So I can't guarantee you're not going to make money in it. So if people want to participate in it, participate, but make sure that whatever amount you're putting in, if that were to drop by 90% at the end of the year, that you're okay, that you're going, you know what, I wanted to try out this this circus. And here's the reason why I would also be very clear as to why you're buying something. What is its purpose? So because there's so many different cryptocurrencies, the specific one that you're purchasing, what is its purpose and why would it be around after three years from now? So what is the utility of it? So for, so if you can understand that then and you want to invest in it, go ahead, but also be comfortable knowing if I lose it, I at least, you know, it was worth me taking the risk because I could have doubled it, whatever the case is. Um, I'm sure during uh, the Silicon Valley bank collapse and Republic Bank and people worrying about the stability of banks uh, now, maybe it's just as much as they were worrying in 2007, 2008. Are they wanting to know, should I just put my money in a mattress? Uh, so what are you telling people when this is going on? I think the biggest reaction that I've seen is people moving to larger institutions rather than the mattress play of um, taking them to, to bigger banks. So I think the influx that a lot of these bigger institutions has seen of money coming to more secure places has been kind of astronomical. So that's kind of the biggest thing that I've seen is, well, what is this impact going to be? I think for small businesses, that concern is like what I've seen more is because I do work with a lot of business owners um, that really come to me initially for personal reasons. And the more we're looking at it, it's like, well, you're not really running the finances in in your business. Let's kind of look at this all together is, you know, having kind of a less access to capital has been the biggest thing of like, are, are you prepared for that? Do you have cash reserves to support parts of the business that maybe you were investing in that you're not going to be able to tap this line of credit at these low interest rates. Like, well, what does this mean for the growth of, of the company? Um, but for people, I think it's uh, what I've seen the most too, is people wanting to educate themselves of well, what, what's happening? What is my money invested in? If I'm putting it in a bank, what does that look like? And really sticking with more um, kind of name brand things that are out there using, you know, places that have the FDIC insurance or the SIPC insurance. I mean, that, that was a um, complicated because those banks aren't that small. I mean, yeah. uh, Silicon Valley Bank was the 18th or 20th largest bank at a 5,000 in America, 220 billion in assets. It's a huge bank and Republic is also, but both of them had concentrations. Silicon Valley is concentrated in um, technology companies. And and they've had their ups and downs because of the market. But everybody thought for 40 years that was a super smart idea to focus on one target market. And all the venture people were getting their clients. My daughter said there was a lot of panic because she had a lot of venture-backed companies uh, oh, that sure. couldn't access their capital. And then we're public. They're heavily concentrated with real estate developers developing commercial real estate that goes sideways, but for years, it looked like a smart move to focus and be expert in one area. So it looks like from a bank standpoint, yeah, you could go to JP Morgan, but maybe it's smarter or, 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 or Wells Fargo just to put some of your money in a few different banks to know it's least covered by insurance if the government doesn't backstop it. It's, is that what some of your thoughts are? Yeah, well, you have the FDIC insurance that you could separate in different accounts. It's also depending on the, the name registration within that, that they can cover more than the 250 if you have an individual plus a joint account. So just really educating yourself on what that is. Um, but many people or the most people that would be affected by that are really businesses that were using these banks also for credit. So as individuals, um, yes, their, their um, money isn't definitely insured through the FDIC. So it's kind of a, it's a multi-layered issue um, of looking at it, of them kind of more easy lending that they were doing for same thing when you're looking at utility. Well, what are these companies actually bringing in, able to pay back? What is the, instead of just looking at growth, growth, growth. Um, but for people, yes, if you have more than 250 in cash and you want to do that, you could spread it out. You could look at um, brokerage firms. I know a lot of 
Um, brokerage firms will also use different banks as cash reserves. So they might even, if you had a million dollars, they might even split it up into different FDIC-shared banks. So just ask questions until you feel comfortable, knowledgeable, you understand if something were to happen, what are your next steps? I like just listening to you. You've got a great voice to listen to. You should do your own show. (laughs) How do you account for inflation? Because no one predicted the big jump we saw in the last year. Well, this is funny because financial planners talk about inflation, but people were just like, okay, there's no inflation. What do you like? You know, you know nothing. So I think um, we've always included it. Um, It's been minimal because typically when you're using any kind of financial planning software, rather than just picking any rate of inflation, there has to be some reason behind doing that. So we do use historical averages, which have been kind of muted. So um, I think being really specific to including inflation in there, seeing the impact and also raising the rate of inflation in different areas as well, because healthcare costs rise faster than any other costs that we have, education costs are rising faster, faster. So just making sure that for different areas of your life that you're going to be spending money in, that you are including inflation within there. And it's this, it's similar when someone has a 401k or a pre-tax IRA, you know, and they have, well, let's just say they have a million dollars in there and we're doing planning and we're looking at their goals and they're going, okay, well, I can use this million dollars. I can put this much here. I can, you know, use that for this and this. But it's like, well, after taxes and in the state that you live in, that's not a million dollars. You know, it's, it's the same thing where even though you can't see or touch inflation, we do want to include it in those conversations to show that it's it will eat at your money. And that's why you want to be invested. And because interest rates are going up, you have more attractive money markets that you can invest in. So keeping more money in cash is less um less boring than it was a few years ago. So there's 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 ways that your um keeping money in cash reserves isn't as um as bad as it was a couple of years ago in terms of the the yields that you can get. So last question for you. What's your last piece of advice for people thinking about and by the way, people should get your book. It's a very easy read. It's you know it's uh, at a level that you don't have to have an MBA from Wharton or Harvard uh, to understand it and very practical. So what's your last piece of advice that people should be thinking about, especially in these volatile times right now? I would examine your emergency funds and and look at, you know, do, do I have them? Do I have enough? I think that we're, and especially if you're self-employed or you have different business ventures that are tied to uh, consumer spending, I, I would just kind of buckle down on what your emergency fund looks like. Because we talk about it a lot. You might have set one up a few years ago, but, you know, is it is it still strong enough to support you if we were to see a little bit of a downturn and you need some access to cash? Or are you in a healthy spot? That would be the biggest advice that I have for this year. I have to tell you, I put I leave them at least a year's worth of cash in the bank. And during the when I was married with our kids, I had two years worth of cash. And when yeah. 2007, 2008 hit, I lost all my marketing clients and a new wow. venture. Everything went under. Wow. But our lifestyle didn't change. And I remember my wife saying, how come we have so much money in cash? And then when that hit, she was really glad that yeah. for two years. And I figured in, I w- immediately went to start trying to you know, make money again uh, and start another venture, get clients again. But I knew that if I could get enough money in the next month, that bought me another month. So I extended that two years. That's As an entrepreneur, I always think about every month I don't have to uh, uh, touch it. I bought myself another year or two years, whatever that money could be um, used for. I would say as an entrepreneur that you just need to continue that message. I've seen because capital has been so easy to access. I've worked with a lot of business owners that are not of that mindset because they're looking at it like, well, I'm not getting anything in that cash. Why would I do that? I have access to this line of credit. And that's why we're going to see a lot of real estate deals falling apart because they have these short-term Uh, loans that they had access to that now those rates have tripled and they're going to have to sell them quickly and and potentially at a loss. So 
Um, I, I love that you like to put money in cash. It's it's hard, right? Because it's not working and you're looking at it like, why do I have this big chunk of change in there? But that's that's why we have it because we can't predict the, these movements. Absolutely. I so enjoyed speaking to you. I know everybody got a lot out of it and uh, I'm hoping you'll write another book and we'll have you back again. That would be awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Everybody have a great weekend. We'll see you all next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.